So we're in week two of John, and we've entitled this series, John, or, or Jesus No Filter. And the reason why is we want people to have a true glimpse, an accurate picture of who Jesus really is. Uh, opinions vary, uh, uh, teachings vary. Uh, you talk to 10 people in Seattle, and you're going to get a whole bunch of different understandings of who Jesus is. And so what better way to, for us to find out who Jesus is than just to go and let him speak for himself in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is great because it's gritty, it's raw, and it's real. And it gives us this up-close eyewitness portrait of who Jesus is. What I love, too, is that no matter where you find yourself, whether it's skeptical of Jesus or you're just thinking he's a good moral teacher or you're not really sure of what he was all about, everyone, everyone for the last 2,000 years has had to reckon with this man named Jesus. No one has had a bigger impact. No one has had a more profound impact on human history than Jesus of Nazareth, which really doesn't make much sense because, in all honesty, he didn't accomplish what would seem that noteworthy during his life. He didn't write a bunch of books. He didn't travel far from home. He didn't run a great empire. He never led massive conquests. But still, his stature and his legacy and his impact has only grown as time has surpassed. And usually what happens with humans in our lives is, as we pass, our story dims and fades away. And we slowly become more and more forgotten. And Jesus has been the exact opposite. The longer it's been since he's left earth, the more his story has carried on. And in fact, it's gone global. We've seen the movement of the gospel, the story of Jesus, just like, just like Jesus predicted, go from Judea to Samaria, which was saying right there from Jerusalem to the outer areas, then taking it to Rome, coming over to the Americas. And then even in the last hundred years, we've seen the gospel particularly explode in places such as Africa and Asia in ways that it never has before. So we continue to see this message go forward. So who is this man named Jesus? And no matter where we find ourselves with him, we have to take him seriously. He's had such an impact on human history. Here's just a few ways. Education. If you think about education and how Jesus has impacted even the realm of education, you would be remiss to leave out Jesus's fingerprints. Even the the great universities that we would all be familiar with, such as Oxford and Cambridge and Yale and Harvard, were all started as pastors' colleges originally. They were originally founded to train and raise up future ministry leaders. Um, or you look at his imprint on the scholastics and the medieval period in which great literature was written by Aquinas and experimentations and scientific experiments such as by men like Isaac Newton, you begin to see the impact that Jesus has had on not just encouraging people to be people of faith, but to also understand how God has made this world around them. Such an incredible impact on education. And then on medicine, we think you can't help but think of even the hospitals in most major metropolitan areas in the United States having a, a Presbyterian attachment to the name or a Methodist attachment next to the name or the Red Cross in its great lineage. You continue to see people that were inspired and motivated by Jesus' healings and his miracles throughout his life and ministry who took that and ran with a legacy of starting great medical traditions and movements. There's fingerprints all over it. Or what about human rights? Up until the life of Jesus, women were often considered commodities or slaves or property and not necessarily were ever even thought of how would we give them um, equal rights or, or, or even want to hear from them. And yet the gospel narratives bring dignity and they bring worth and value in a completely revolutionary way to women in general such as allowing women to be witnesses, which would have discredited most of 
the Gospels because women were the first at the empty tomb. And so Jesus had a profound impact even on how we viewed that. And then the arts and sciences, there have been more portraits and books written about Jesus than anyone else throughout human history. There have been more songs written about Jesus than anyone else throughout human history. And even as we look at the geography of the United States from San Francisco, which was founded after a man who deeply loved Jesus and was motivated to take the gospel to a new and unreached area, or Sacramento, which is actually named after the sacrament. That's literally what it's named after. You can't go to Sacramento without thinking of the sacrament, the very body and blood and act of Jesus Christ. You can't escape, regardless of how you feel about Jesus, his impact on the culture and the world in which we live in. And so, no matter where you find yourself at, people still reach out, have to engage, have to encounter, have to wrestle with Jesus. Desperate people pray to him, grateful people worship him, and angry people swear in his name. Still to this day, people are talking about Jesus. And the claims he made are unlike anyone else's claims throughout human history. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see one of the key turning points in all of Jesus' life right here in John 1 today in the passage we're going to look at. I want to pray real quick, and you guys can turn to John 1, 6, and we're going to look at John 1, 6 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one right there in front of you. Uh, if you're not familiar with where the Gospel of John is, just go about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, and it should be right around there. Or you can look on your phone, or um, if you've brought one with you, you probably know where it is. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into this. Jesus, thank you so much for allowing us to gather, to hear your word, and to just unpack this incredible passage and understand more about who you are and what you've called us to be as your followers. And Jesus, thank you for not uh, leaving us guessing, but revealing yourself so clearly and plainly to us. Amen. Okay, so years ago, before I moved to Seattle, I came here one time for a conference. And before I came here, I had heard rumblings, I had heard stories, I would heard friends and people talk about this this thing called Mount Rainier, about Mount Rainier, this incredible mountain that if you're honest, it almost looks superimposed upon the backdrop of Seattle. There's, there's no way that could honestly be real. It just looks too farcical or, or outrageous or, or just amazing for that to honestly be there all by itself. It's prominence, it's prominence, it's, it's level above anything nearby it is second to none almost of anything else in North America. And I really wanted to see Mount Rainier. So on the flight in, uh, we were coming and getting closer to Seattle, and the pilot was making the announcements that we're getting closer and closer to Seattle, and I had made sure I got a window seat just so I could see Mount Rainier. And as we were dropping down, there was this, this cloud cover, and as we were coming through this cloud cover, I was hoping that it would begin to dissipate so I could see this mountain, so I could see Mount Rainier. And lo and behold, it, it did. And, and Mount Rainier just pops out of nowhere. And this it just fantastic, splendid, awe-inspiring mountain stares you, almost punches you right in the face out of how majestic and amazing and, and just grander it really is. I remember actually elbowing the guy next to me in, in, in the seat. And he actually was startled and probably was completely shocked of why I thought this was so amazing. But really, I had never seen something quite like Mount Rainier. It was stunning. It didn't necessarily have three tips to change my life or practical advice, but what it did is it led me to a moment of just complete awe and wonder, a feeling of, of this is something beyond me. This is something so much more bigger and grand. And as I think we come to John 1, 6 through 18 today, that's the exact place we find ourselves 
encountering something incredibly awe-inspiring and grand and majestic and beautiful. Something glorious shows up that's meant to lead us to the base of Mount Rainier and stand there pulling our stomachs through our toes and our jaws are on the ground as we stare and catch a glimpse of just this majesty and beauty. Because all of human history is changing in John 1. And so this is what it says, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. You see, this is John the Baptist. Most of you guys, you're probably familiar with him, and, and we'll talk more about him in the coming weeks, so we won't spend too much time talking about him today. But John the Baptist had one single agenda. He didn't have an ulterior motive. He didn't have a whole back plan of ambitions and a side category of his own wishes and dreams and objectives, but he had one mission, one objective only, and that was to hail the coming of the Christ, to be the one who would announce the forerunner, that Jesus was coming, that the Messiah was coming. He was a single-issue guy. He did not move off of this. He did not waver. John was relentless in his role of knowing his place. And he had disciples around him who, in some ways, were somewhat infatuated with him, but John would remind them tirelessly and time and time again, I'm not the one you should be looking for. In fact, don't be impressed with me. The one who's coming after me, I wouldn't even be fit to untie his sandals. John's basically saying, don't be impressed with me. It's like being impressed with a guy who takes a flashlight and goes signs it at the sun at noonday and says, there's the light. You would never do that. Everyone knows, of course, that's the light. We all realize that's the light. Your flashlight is insignificant and it's puny in comparison to what we should honestly be looking at. And John knew, John knew his place. John had one agenda and he didn't come once again telling us how to put all of our lives necessarily back together or writing a tips and manual, but he came to lead us to a place of awe, a place of wonder, a place of saying, I don't have advice for you, but I have news. I have news that changes everything because there's, there's, there's a new reality that's about to emerge and it changes everything. John knew his place. John embraced his role. John knew the story that he found himself in. I think for many of us, this has incredible significance that we wonder, where am I, God? What am I doing? Where do I belong? How do I fit in? The world will tell you over and over and over that it's about you, that it's about your experiences, that it's about making your own plans, that it's about having your own agendas, that it's about fulfilling your own wishes, ambitions, and desires. But yet we always know there's this ache, there's this sense of unfulfillment, there's this sense of dissatisfaction that even when we live for ourselves doesn't seem to dissipate. It doesn't seem to go away. And John, John knew, John points us to something incredible that if we know the story, if we know the story that God is telling and we find our place in that story and we're willing to embrace our role, there is a level of contentment. There is a level of peace. There is a level of potential satisfaction that passes all circumstances, that pushes you through trials like you would never believe. John's story does not end well. I'm not going to ruin it, but it doesn't necessarily go well for John. So what sustains him? What enables him? What holds him to continue to press on? It's because he knows his place. He knows what God 
has intended for him. And there's great meaning, there's great satisfaction, and there's great joy in that. Purpose will push you through the most painful places. Purpose will push you through the most painful places. When you're parenting and it feels like it's not ever going to get better, when your your child is going wayward or you're picking up the 800 Cheerio for the day, when you're cleaning out cheesy crackers from the floor carpet, when you're filing the 10 hundredth TPS report at work and you don't know why, John's saying, don't forget your role. Don't forget your purpose. Just like John, we're sent to proclaim, to share this good news, to remind people of the story, the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And that's exactly what our passage is about. That's exactly what Jesus tips us onto here in a second. So let's go ahead and read the next section, starting in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. So John is pushing us back to this idea of light. We've seen this word pop up over and over again, light, light. John calls Jesus light over and over again, even in the first five verses. What is going on? Well, this word has incredible significance. In fact, it's laced all throughout the Gospel of John. You'll find it time and time again. Most of us are familiar that Jesus would routinely call himself the Son of Man, but in John, he's always calling himself also the light, the light. This is the Greek word photos, which all of us, it sounds familiar to us because it is. It's where we get our word photo. So what Jesus is saying, what John is saying about Jesus is this is the photo of God. Jesus is the very photo of God. He is the image of God. You're wanting to see what God looks like. You're wanting to see who God is. You're wanting to understand who God is. And here's finally a crisp, clear image of God. God's people for thousands of years would have found this to be revolutionary and completely wild. The fact that you could honestly see God that you could see God and see what he looks like and know who he is and not completely perish. John's turning everything over. He's saying this light, this light that comes into the world, this light changes everything. Because now we have a light, we have a clear picture of who God is. We don't necessarily have to speculate, we don't have to guess, we don't have to stumble around, and we don't have to wonder. In fact, it's been revealed This is what revelation means. There's no longer any guessing or speculating or theorizing. There is revelation. The image, the photo of God has been revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the photo of God. He is the photos of God. This word pops up over and over and over again. And yet what happens? Some of the people, the the Jewish audience that John's writing to, he, he, he says something that's astounding. He says the very people that have, have the stories and the songs and the traditions and have been aching and waiting for this, this photo of God to show up, this logos, this, this Messiah, they are the very ones who reject him. They're the very ones that say, uh-uh, that can't be. Why is that? 
Why? What's going on there? If we're honest, there's, there's, there's a couple responses we all have to light. You know, light, light can be a beautiful thing, and light can also be a terrifying thing because sometimes it exposes and it reveals things that we're not ready to deal with or we're not ready to be honest about or things that we don't want to be true. Light exposes. Now, here, here's the truth. Like, this is a real simple way to understand it. If, if, if you're escaping from prison, a searchlight is your worst enemy. You don't want a searchlight to find you. You don't want to be exposed by the light. The light is not your friend. The light is your enemy. The light is not there to help you, but the light is there to condemn you. The light is there to bring you to justice. But if you're lost at sea in the middle of the night, the greatest thing that could come upon you is a searchlight, a light that has found you, a light that has identified you, a light that can change your very destiny. So what is your posture to the light? What is our response to the light? What John is calling out here is that people's hearts, their motives, their ambitions is what's going on here. Are you afraid of the light? Is the light something that you're worried will condemn you? Is the light something you're worried that will judge you? Or do you understand that the light, Jesus, was meant to bring grace? That Jesus said, I don't come to kill and condemn and destroy, but instead I come to save that whoever would believe in me would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus didn't come to kill and destroy and condemn you. He came to save you. He came to expose light onto you so that you might live, so that you might have new life, so that you might be transformed. John is begging us to embrace the light, to not be afraid. I think about um, when I was a kid. I don't know why we did this. Probably because we are boys and we are kids. Um, but we would play, we would turn off all the lights in my house, and we would then play hide-and-go-seek in the dark. And um, I, I guess it just raised the stakes somewhat. But it would always end with one just inevitable outcome, and that's someone running into a wall and getting a bloody nose. And that's just always how it ended, because you would be running away from someone, you'd be afraid you were about to be found out, you'd be afraid that you were about to be exposed, so you would take off running, and sure enough, someone would run dead smack into a wall or a door. And you just hear this scream from the other room, knowing, okay, hide and seek's over. Someone turn on the light. And when I look at the world around us, when I look at the people that God has sent us to reach, I think that that's largely what's going on. We're playing hide and go seek in the dark. We're trying to live life in the dark. We're groping around. We're grasping. This is what the Bible means when it says we need ears to hear and eyes to see. And this is a divine act. This is why verse 13 tells us that God is giving us the right to become children of his. And this is not because you were born into the right family. This is not because you worked hard enough. This is not because you earned it. This is not because you deserve it. This is not because you have a great GPA or a fantastic resume, but it's because God wills it. God wills it. He wills that you would become his child. Notice, too, this isn't saying that you would become someone who is now on his good list instead of his naughty list, or you're someone who he now is no longer angry with. He's saying that you're his kid, that he loves you, that you can be adopted, that you can be regenerated, that you can be made new, because the God of the universe came, came so that you would see the light, that you would see the photograph of God, that you would see who he is. So you become a child of God. And here's where the moment of awe really comes upon us. This is where, if, if you know, looking at the 
story I was telling at the beginning, the Mount Rainier just pops out of nowhere. It's, it, it comes right here in verse 14, and it's meant to just, just lead us to this place of wonder and amazement. And the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the very means of redemption. This is the instrument of our redemption. This is the Savior. This is the God of the universe coming in human flesh to take up residence, to dwell with us. That word dwell right there, that's the Greek word skneu. And what it means is literally what it means is to set up a tent. To set up a tent. Jesus comes and he sets up a tent with us. He draws near. He comes close to us. And this language has immediate hauntings and echoings of the Exodus story. That's it. Oh, exactly what it's meant to, uh, for us to think about. That as we hear that, that, that we're supposed to remember the Exodus story where God set up a tent to be with his people as they wandered through the desert for 40 years. That he did not abandon them, that he did not leave them in exile, that he did not leave them in Exodus, but he stayed close that he pitched his tent. And this light, this light has now come into human flesh. And all the questions, all the curiosities, all of the uh, confusion that we wrestle with, we are seeing it revealed in the person of Jesus. That we no longer have to wrestle with, what is this life all about? Who is God? Can I please him? Can I stay on his good side? Can I earn his love? Rather, he has come near. He has entered into the mess. He is getting as close as he can so that you will have this incredibly crisp and accurate picture of who God is. That you and I would no longer have to doubt or we'd no longer have to find ourselves in places of saying, what could God possibly be doing through all of this mess in my life? Through the pain, through the suffering, through the monotony, through the mundane, what is God doing? Well, He showed you. He's come, He's entered into human flesh so that you could be adopted, so that you could be known, so that you could experience His love. See, this is incredible. This is what separates Christianity from any other world religion or any other belief system out there. Islam will tell you simply, you know what? Stack up the scales as high as you can. Do the absolute best you can. Follow the rules as best you can. And when you breathe your last breath, hopefully the scales will work out in your favor. Buddhism says something of, well, just empty yourself of desire and enter into this weird place where hopefully you join back up with the great nothingness. And even the predominant narrative of our time and place, the predominant story of our city, maybe that secular materialistic worldview tells you, don't stand too close to the abyss and begin asking questions about meaning and beauty and truth and love and significance and worth and value because what you will see will frighten you. Frederick Nietzsche, one of the most, I mean, faithful atheist philosophers from the 19th and 20th century, he said that in order to be a faithful atheist, you actually have to come to the abyss and stare at it 
and make peace with the absolute nothingness of it. And here Jesus comes and he says, God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. He's giving you his word. And this word has now taken on flesh so that you would have light. That you would see clearly who God is. Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of the central point of God's people. So us as a church, we're a new, young church. What unites us? What binds us together? It's not a temple. We don't have a temple. The temple was destroyed back in 72 AD. What holds us together? Well, we don't need a temple because God no longer dwells in a temple, but he dwells in human flesh. And as he went and lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we should have died and then rises again from the dead, his spirit has come upon us so that you and I now are where he dwells. It's the spirit who lives and takes up residence in us. And so when we come together as God's people, we are the church. We're the presence of God in many ways here in Seattle in 2015. We reflect, we image, we show and tell those around us who Jesus is. This is what I love about the incarnation also. And I'm not saying that we need to replicate the incarnation. The incarnation is a one-time historical theologically important event saying that God, God took on human flesh and came to walk amongst us. But the example is worth us following. And that example is that you and I, because we have the Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, we get the chance to show, to show those around us what Jesus looks like and to proclaim his good news, to proclaim the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, to continue on being a flesh and blood representation of this story. The incarnation answers the profound question that all of us have always had, and that's, does God care? Does anyone care? And the answer is emphatic, yes. God cares so much that he would leave the heavenly realms, his rightful place of ruling and reigning over all of creation, to move into human form. And to not come in this stately, ornate, high reigning role, but rather to come in humility, to come in a place of meagerness, to come in a place in which he can identify with those who are the most marginalized, those who are often the most forgotten. And Jesus comes and he completely makes it possible even 2,000 years later that we we could know that we have a God who knows what it's like to be human. So your pain, your suffering, your sorrows, your frustrations, your hurts, your wonders, all of that. God doesn't look at you from far off and say, well, I hope you figure that out. I hope that gets better. Man, that stinks. That must be tough. So he says, I know. I've been there. And because I've been there, I've actually lived a life and died a death so that you could be made new. Jesus is God's word, and the word of God reveals who God is. So let's, let's look at this for a second. Think with me, okay? It's really important for us to understand. Revelation, revelation. So there's obviously, people talk about this all the time, the, the doctrine of revelation, so which is 
we believe that the Bible is how God reveals himself to us. And what does the Bible do? Well, if you're, you know, you've been around the church for any period of time, you understand, oh, well, the Bible's for equipping and training and um, rebuke. And, and by reading the Bible, we become more and more like Jesus. So what does the Bible do? The Bible becomes a means, it becomes a way in which we understand and see who God is, and we become more like him. So what does God's word do? Well, God's word, it, it creates. It creates a Christian. So it's the preached word of God. It's sharing God's word. It's us reading God's word that forms us, that shapes us, that helps us grow up. This is why in our life groups, we read the Bible, we study the Bible together, and there's, there's, there's nothing you could do um, outside, of, outside of just repenting of sin. But there's nothing you could do that's more beneficial for your spiritual growth than to be regularly reading the Bible because God's word does not return void. If you're reading God's word, it will have an impact on your life. Okay, why am I telling you that? Okay, Original creation, because John 1, 6 through 18 is the exact story of original creation. In the beginning was, was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God is how John starts. And then how does Genesis 1 start? In the beginning, God created. So God speaks. God says, let there be light. And so God's words create. God's words form something. God's words make something. That happens in the creation story, and then it also happens in the new creation. And the new creation is beginning right here in John 1. So what we're seeing John do is he's almost retelling the creation story. He's saying, all of you are going to be familiar with Genesis 1. You know about in the beginning. You know that I spoke. And what's the first thing he brings into existence? He says, let there, who knows it, be light. Let there be light. So let there be light. And because he speaks, there's light. And so... Light is brought by the Word, by God speaking. The exact same thing here in John 1. The Word brings light, and that light shows us who God is. This is a parallel story, and we're seeing this traced all throughout the Bible. You begin to see these themes over and over and over again. And our passage finishes with this same reality. Let's continue reading. We'll finish up the last bit of our section. John 15 says this, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So what he's saying is long before I existed, long before I came around, Jesus was there. Jesus is pre-existing me. Jesus is the one who I've been telling you about. Jesus is the one that I have been proclaiming. And he says, out of the fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. What he's saying there is that this new grace, this grace that's be established in this new creation, which John 1 is, John 1 is talking about a new creation, a new creation that's beginning right here, that it's replacing the old grace. Because God's law at Mount Sinai with the Israelites in the Exodus story, that was a form of grace. Because he was telling his people how to live, what life should look like, how you should live. The problem is, is humans are not very good at rules. You give us rules and we tend to want to break them, rebel against them, or disobey them. So we needed a greater grace. We needed a grace to replace that grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God, is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Has made him known. I would dare to venture that none of us would 
claimed to be as righteous as Moses, right? Am I, am I going out on a limb? Anyone? Okay. And so Moses asks God, can I see you? And what does God say? God says, no, it would destroy you. So the answer for Moses, when he says, show me, show me who you are, show me your glory, his answer is no. When you and I ask to see God, the answer is yes. Moses was told no, you and I are told yes, because we get to see the very photo, we get to see the very image of God in Jesus Christ. You and I have been granted a much greater privilege and access than even Moses. So Moses is told no, and we are told yes, that you will get to see the very revelation of God. You will get to see the word made flesh. And this law, this law, none of you could fulfill, none of you could keep. We are now superseding that with grace, grace upon grace upon grace for God's people. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the coming of Christ. God's people were in the dark in the Exodus story. And God shows up with a burning bush. And then he sends them out and gives them tablets and they have a new way of living based off the Ten Commandments and he tabernacles with them in a tent. We all find ourselves in a place of deep darkness, groping around, looking for answers, trying to satiate and ask ourselves the deepest meanings and questions about life. And instead of a burning bush, we get Jesus. We get God in the flesh. And this God in the flesh does not set up a temple or does not give us tablets, but he gives us a message of grace. And instead of a temple where animals are continually sacrificed, he picks up a cross. And that cross is one final payment for sin. Jesus, the God-man, is incarnated. He loves us. He's drawn near. He cares about us more than we could ever imagine. And there's grace upon grace. One day, one day Jesus will return. God will return. There will be a day in which there's, there's judgment. And that's why our passage says that Jesus comes with grace and truth. Because grace and truth are not in opposition to one another. They're actually two sides of the same coin. You can't have grace without truth, because otherwise you just have sentimentality. And you can't have truth without grace, because otherwise you just have law. And so Jesus comes to be grace and truth the one who speaks truly to our condition, to our brokenness, to our blindness, to our groping around in the dark. And he gives us light. And he doesn't expose us or shame us or condemn us. He loves us and he gives us grace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your incredible kindness. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your your grace. Grace upon grace that transforms us, changes us, that makes us new. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, that uh, you have come to be in the flesh, that you're, you're not a God who stays far off and removed, barking orders, but instead you come and show us who you are. I would pray for all of us that we would stand in awe that our God is able to identify with us, to know what it's like to suffer and to hurt, but also a God who is able to conquer sin, and to offer us new life, and to give us grace. We thank you, Jesus, that the the tomb is empty, and that you've loved us beyond any love we, we could find or know anywhere else. In your name, amen.